Hello, I'm Stephen Coates, and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm standing on a road in northeast London, Balls Pond Road to be precise. I used to travel down this road on the bus when I was seeing somebody in Dalston back in the day. But I'm sure you're not interested in the geography of my romantic past. I, I came here to look at a house, house number 99. It's a rather modest, typical London mid-terrace from the late 19th century, I guess. And this part of London, this street actually, has gone through lots of changes. It was once genteel, then it was down at heel, and now it's on its way up again. You can tell by the number of estate agent signs. The house itself is still quite scruffy. It's hidden by a large bush, and there's absolutely no sign of the exciting things that happened here in the years 1967 and 1968. Deep in the heart of swinging countercultural London, when it was occupied by an experimental theatre and arts group called The Exploding Galaxy. And that's the subject of this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture with author Jill Drow, who spent some of her formative years as part of the Exploding Galaxy troupe in this house and has written an extraordinary book about it. We're also going to dig deep into the psychedelic happenings at the UFO Club, at the 14-hour technical dream event, kinetic art, getting busted by dodgy police officers planting weed, and what it was like to be young and witness all this crazy shit happening around you. For more of our crazy shit, check out all that we do at bureauoflostculture.com, where you can join us, contact us, support our wild endeavours. In the meantime, let's head back to the studio to meet Jill and my co-conspirator, Kev Folks, DJ Food. The Exploding Galaxy was a living multimedia art form, a collective of artists, musicians, poets and dancers who shared a creative spirit that defied the boundaries between art and life. This experimental dance drama group lived as a community at 99 Balls Pond Road in North London from early 1967 until it disbanded at the end of 1968. And our guest today was an exploder. Right, yes. Jill Drower. Hello, yes. Jill. And my co-countercultural host, Strictly Kev, DJ Food. Hello, Kev. Hi there. And I must confess, Kev actually turned me on, as it were, to Jill Drower's book, The Exploding Galaxy, which is amazing. And I'll also mention the fact that if you check out Kev's website, djfood.org, you'll see the amazing countercultural artwork that he's been posting from. Yes, I've been combing the archives for flyers, posters, for things like Middle Earth, UFO, and all sorts of other interesting countercultural publications. I think UFO is going to feature in this story, yes. right? Well, Fairly talking heavily. of posters, I used to go around UFO and uh, the LSE and everywhere they had gigs and take the posters down. I had um, Plant a Flower Child and I had Games for May, which was um, a Pink Floyd one, which I'd taken off the walls. I betrayed my 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 hippie roots by ringing up um, an auction house and asking how much I could sell this poster for. <laughs> well, I want to back up the truck a bit because yes. we're going to be talking about the Exploding Galaxy and I did a little intro about it there, but, and Kev's got a whole list of questions for you, Jill, which we're going to go through, because you tell us, from your point of view, what was the Exploding Galaxy? How did you come to it? Yeah, well, I suppose you have to go back to UFO, UFO being the nightclub that was um, the Flower Children's favourite nightclub in London in the 60s. And uh, it was there that um, I met David Medalla, who was an artist, kinetic artist, and his gallery had gone bust. Um, that was Signals, right? That was Signals. In Wigmore Street. That's the one. And um, it it was a, a very innovative gallery, um, but it did go under because no one wanted to buy kinetic artworks at that time. Of course, they're all now in major museums. So I'm going to stop you there because I need to understand what a few of these terms are. Um, what's a kinetic artwork? Kinetic artwork is um, an artwork that has... M 
movement involved in it somehow. So, for example, if you take something like Bridget Riley, I would say that I would describe that as kinetic because it's got a sort of op art feel. There's a movement, moiré and all, mm. all, all of that. You, uh, so that's one kind of uh, kinetic artwork, well, under my definition. The others uh, were items that had a motor attached and uh, or it may have been gravity or mag uh, a magnet that made them move so you have the artist Takis who had um, he used old industrial magnets and you'd have a pendulum and it would hang down and it make a humming noise and a reverberation and then it would swing in random ways and of course the hippies adored anything to do with random so this gallery showed people like that including David Medalla who went on to start the exploding galaxy so, and he had the bubble machines didn't he that was one of his yes. big things his 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 was you there was a motor with some boxes and a hole at the top and soap would sort of spill I wouldn't say it spilt it sort of folded out over itself and they were called cloud canyons because uh, that's how they looked and um, it was all right again it was random so you, whatever shape you, you might you know there was a photographer who used to come and photograph the bubble machines and he'd he'd be uh, um, absolutely surprised at how different each photograph was with mm. the the foam the foam folds I suppose you'd call them um, anyway so there was a strong connection with the Signals Art Gallery there was a very strong connection with this club that had just opened up in London and um, there was also the element of LSD which although most of us hadn't taken it at that point was um, it, it changed the way you looked at the world quite a bit. And um, I think that has to be added in as one of the contributing factors to how the exploding galaxy developed over the next two years. How old were you? I, it sounds shocking. I was 15. And you were from Putney? I was from Putney and Posh I went to Putney, Putney. Putney High School even. So, <laughs> um, But um, I was also in a folk group at that time so from the age of 14 I was singing in a folk group with my sister and a friend of ours all from Putney High School and we went on the radio and did folk song cellar with people like Robin Hall and Jimmy McGregor but the 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 thing was that my parents knew that we were out gigging a lot so they got used to the idea of their 15 year old daughter going out with her older sister to whatever it might have been the Beatles at Hammersmith Odeon or 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 a folk club where we would perform when I was 15, I'm not sure I'd have even had my first spot. I'm no Ke- <laughs> I know Kev was sort of kicking around looking like a Well, I a was doing graffiti. Kid. I was doing graffiti <laughs> on walls at 15 and, so and learning to rebel. DJ. Yeah. I, a little rev. I, I wasn't nicking paint or anything like that, but and I was painting derelict buildings, not trains. But, you two you know. were so cool, you see. <laughs> well, I suppose it was it seamlessly slipped into being about psychedelia because what you have to remember about the 60s that folk music was absolutely applauded and adored. Mm. And, you know, some of those um, uh, scales that you hear in folk music were starting to be used by the Beatles and others. So... Um, folk music wasn't so far away from hippiedom and uh, if you went to folk clubs you got International Times uh, picked it up there ooh what's on here first free listings magazine I need to say it was so different then it was absolutely you know we didn't have mobile phones we didn't have social media what you had was this paper that had free listings now if you imagine you wanted to go see a friend on the other side of london me and putney friend in hackney how did you find out if they had no phone how did you find out you had to get on the bus you get on two buses you get to their house they wouldn't be there so communication was so much more tricky in those days and so when you had a a magazine that said well on you know this day we'll all be there it's all about we'll all be there so kev you've been digging deep into the um the archives of it and oz and stuff haven't you i mean that's that's an interesting thought isn't it the first sort of social media in a way yeah in a lot of ways and and there was a there was a thing at middle earth wasn't it they had a stool with it which was they kicked it out or something it didn't stay 
hippie in the true sense of hippie for very long. It got commercialised. They didn't. Quickly. They didn't understand that this yeah. was basically the lifeline of the underground. But going back to the UFO, I mean, just describe it because I think you went to the first one. I went to the first one, yes. That was 23rd of December 1966. I didn't go to the party prior to that that was on the roundhouse, but I went to the first one and I remember painting my legs with daisies. So painting on body parts must have been in by then. Um, And flowers were very much a a a cultural icon already. Well, just about, yes, they were, I suppose. And, I mean, the whole thing about, you know, there's this terrible cliché about the 60s, which is um, everything was monochrome and then suddenly you got to the 67 and and then everything was multicoloured. But unfortunately, it's true. It really did feel like that. And, I mean, why was UFO different? I was trying to think about how... Um, the other clubs weren't the same. There was Tiles, which was sort of connected a bit to UFO through Jeff Dexter, but but there was the Marquee, the Eel Pie Island. People dressed in stay-pressed trousers. It was modish. I remember people in button-down shirts, but it was all terribly straight, and you dance through the numbers. So there, um, it was all predictable but when you got to UFO and from the very beginning was absolutely wild and um, so the first thing was a nightclub that didn't sell booze now quite unusual that wouldn't you think Mm. so you queued up at the bar for orange pop and um, you might be queuing next to Jimi Hendrix. Well, for a 15-year-old, can you imagine how that felt? And then oh, around the corner, you're, you're dancing with Pete Townsend. And, um, oh, Eric Clapton's over there. Did you see? You're not allowed to look. You're not allowed to notice because <laughs> you have to be cool when you're around these yeah. people. Uh, so, there for, for, you know, for me, that was absolutely wonderful. But it was, it was very different in that it didn't have booze people were smoking surreptitious joints maybe you'd see someone on an acid trip but um, the fact that there was no booze made it a very different type of place that there were other things that were different like for example Pink Floyd, Soft Machine, um, Arthur Brown all these bands they played differently because they, their sets went on for 40 minutes or so mm. a one oh. single number would be 40 minutes so you could be dancing you'd explore the whole space you would do the kind of you know not the sort of jerky old-fashioned style dancing we'd been used to but it was anything goes mm. and then with clothes they were all different people wore costumes it was a bit like a fancy dress cost you know show uh people would wear head dresses people would wear paper dresses um if you didn't have money and i didn't have much money you bought all your clothes from jumble sales which were crepe de chine 40s numbers um i sewed my um uh, ufo dress because i wore the same dress for probably about six months for ufo um it was a, a utility you know the utility logo from the war with two semicircles it was one of those um, and I'd hemmed it during double chemistry. So I I had this dress, and that, that was cheap as chips, you know, you didn't... Yeah. Um, and, um, you, had the, you had the light shows as well, Mark Boyle and people like that yes, doing light. Yes, tons. There was Joe Gannon. Uh, Mark Boyle wasn't the only one. Because I think it's important to, to remember that Ufa was in this basement on... The Tottenham Court Road, right? Bl- Just up the, the Blarney road, Club. the Blarney Club. Mm. Not a very, a very unprepossessing place itself, right? And it was transformed, right, by these light shows and by the things that were yes. going on in there. Definitely wasn't. The place was pretty grim. Mm. Put it that way. And I also wanted to just to say what you're saying about like the bands playing one song or piece that went on for 40 minutes. Pete Jenner said that. You know, previous to that, bands would go on these kind of tours, three or four bands on a tour, and they'd, they'd play that. They're all the whole set would be like twenty-five minutes, and then they would, oh, really? Pink Floyd had gone tour around the UK, and they were allowed to play twenty-five minutes, and then the next band came on. And then suddenly they had a place like that, where they could just play, let go, uh, let go, just improvise and just keep going. Right, so it must have been a totally different vibe. All, I don't remember at other clubs, but at UFO, between bands, it was silent. So what did you do? You talked. We were all talking about this new revolution. We thought we were in a revolution. 
and so everyone got to know each other which you don't you know you wouldn't in a normal nightclub and there were things like improvised poetry but then there was this amazing thing that was very true to the uh, flower children which was this mix of high culture at high high brow versus low brow so you'd have a film on at ufo which would be the incredible shrinking man so you get smaller and smaller and smaller and then the next moment you'll see kurosawa with some sort of high <laughs> rashomon and and or you'd have bark and then you or some sort of disney song cheap disney song it would it, it, the thing about the counterculture it absolutely adored this mix of highbrow and lowbrow and uh, even the artist richard hamilton the pop artist mm. he uh, went on a cnd march with a, a life-size cardboard cutout of Marilyn Monroe, just so that he could mix the highbrow <laughs> and the lowbrow. <laughs> so, I mean, there was lots of experimentation, which made it different from a nightclub. And that's where the Exploding Galaxy was born, because in there was David Medalla, this kinetic artist known for his bubble machines, doing mudras. Now, no one did mudras. What's a, a mudra? I don't know. A mudra is. is an Indian hand gesture uh part of indian dancing they have the stamping and the, but mudras tell a story when you're trying to tell a story in in um indian mythology you um use your hands to show the things that are happening so it aids the story well he was doing mudras down in in ufo and gathered people around him and said i want to start a ballet troupe so so but it, it was strange because what started as a ballet troupe uh, sort of amateur ballet troupe, you'd say, turned into a humanoid artwork, is how I'd describe it, because after the months, wait, but, but the, the big change was at the Bird Ballet, I really saw differences there. Um, what went on on stage was someone might struggle across the stage with layers and layers of clothes or drag a chair across the stage and it was it was like looking at a kinetic sculpture so it had broken down the barriers hmm. between theatre and kinetic sculpture let's have a little sidebar here so david Medella, painter poet sculptor dancer performer, born in manila right yes uh, filipino filipino very good looking uh, yes, adored by everybody, and he um, he was just a presence in in sixty six in the mid sixties. Well, Kev in mentioned London. Kev mentioned earlier the, sig the signals experimental gallery. That was David and who? Uh, Paul Keeler. Paul Keeler uh, owned ninety nine Balls Pond Road, and he had managed to get the um, lease of Signals Gallery from his father, who ran Keeler Optics in Wigmore Street. And that area, there are a lot of um, optical shops and chemists, but there are also a lot of art galleries. So it switched very nicely. It had some time to run on the lease. And he said, can I can I use this for an art gallery? Of course, it was there were two galleries at that time that were really popular. One was um, Indica, which uh, I remember associating that with the Yoko Ono, but the other one was Signals, and people would fly in from New York to go and see their openings. They were so much the cutting edge. Mm. And it's just such a terrible pity that when that gallery closed down, you couldn't give away the artworks. Of course, now you, they're worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. But the thing with that was that they were terrible businessmen, weren't they? They were great socialites and they could get people into the gallery, exactly. but they couldn't sell. And this brings me on to another thing that I, another assertion in your book is that a good proportion of the people in UFO were public school educated. Oh, yeah. And it was a very, very hmm. middle class to upper middle class It was very world. privileged. Privileged, It was. Yeah. You, you get, um, I mean, it wasn't entirely like that, but it was pretty significantly like that. I mean, you did have the odd Grover, people from Notting Hill Gate, we could, they called them the Grovers. You did have people from London Free School. Um, but on the whole... People were publicly public had been to public school. Pete Jenner. He, Pete went to public school, I think. And, oh, did he? Uh, yeah, sure. And he said exactly the same thing. This very small group of people, a lot of them have been to public school and Cambridge and university, right? And uh, and and I remember he said that some of them had this sort of sense of mission that they were there to sort of educate the lower oh, classes. Yes, terribly you know? didactic. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, and and very smug. I mean. 
I, I cringe at some of the things I heard. But um, if you take Balls Pond Road, which was pretty squalid, um, it didn't have the electricity, you know, it did have water, thank goodness. But it was a pretty rough place to live. But if you think of public school boys, you know, in their prep where they have to break the ice to wash their face in the morning you know they used to educate um Char- children character building to to be able to rule the empire you know before we go on let's do a bit more uh, biography here because actually you're from putney a posh part of london right as well yes. so you're you're a folk singer you know at very early age you're going out with your sister playing gigs so your folks are like your parents are like well yeah that's okay but you were actually starting to go to ufo i wouldn't have been as tolerant and i don't think i was as a parent as tolerant as they were i was much more sort of trying to watch what was happening but 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 you're still getting your homework well i'd been out all night friday night it wasn't very good for my homework but it was very good for my education i was so well educated in the exploding galaxy I mean, it's really, you know, speaks for alternative types of education because that house, for all its squalor, for all its kind of freezing winter temperatures and all of that, it was full of books and artworks. And if you went, I would take a book off the shelf and it'd say, Baudelaire on Poe. And I'd say, oh, I didn't know Baudelaire had written a book on Poe. And I knew nothing about Poe and nothing about Baudelaire. But then I went on to read all about Poe, adored Edgar Allan Poe. And then I found out that from this Baudelaire book that he lived in Stoke Newington. So before we before we started <laughs> digging into what they had on the bookshelf, um, you, you'd gone to... UFO. David Mandel was there. He decided to set up this thing called the Exploding Galaxy. Yes. So what happened next? How did you get involved and how did it start in this house in Balls Pond Road? It was at uh, UFO that David was talking about starting this group. And he said, and he invited us. So I went over once to the house. Then there was Carol Grimes, the singer Carol Grimes, who at that time was living with her husband, um, Larry smart and he was a painter so we all went we used to do rehearsals when they explorations weren't they well they get later on once gerald fitzgerald comes in it's all about exploration activation and the whole lot of sort of secret language of the exploding galaxy the main thing was we were getting ready for a performance at the 14-hour technicolor dream so I would go along, you know, this would be weekend. I was a weekend hippie. I wasn't, a, you know, every day. So you were in Putney during the week at school. Then at yeah. the weekend you go up to Dalston to yes. Balls Pond yes. Road. Yeah, and so we, we prepared for this 14-hour Technicolor dream. And we, I remember a shawl and a pineapple. I don't remember much in the way of effort. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can go a long way with a shawl and a pineapple. There were probably a few okay. joints in the room. <laughs> the 14-hour Technicolor dream. The organisers of this country's first major psychedelic event chose May Day Eve for their all-night ritual and Alexandra Palace as their temple. They offered the Queen and the Prime Minister free admission and charged 7,000 other people a pound a head. The 14-hour technical dream was a concert held in the Great Hall of Alexandra Palace, a rather grand venue in North London, on the 29th of April, 1967. It was a fundraiser for the underground countercultural newspaper International Times, which at that time was in trouble after various police raids and was being subject to an obscenity trial. Performers like the Exploding Galaxy Ballet Company gave their services free. This work, extemporised for the event, is called the Fuzz Death Ballet. In the language of the underground, the words of groovy people, fuzz means authority, especially the police. The aim of this country's... The concert was organised mainly by Barry Miles, who we're going to hear from in a future episode of The Bureau, and the late John Hoppy Hopkins, a pivotal figure in the underground and various others. The event was a spectacular psychedelic carnival of music, art and theatre, with various stages, including a small one for poets, performance artists, jugglers, dancers... There were light shows in every corner, with films projected on white sheets that were taped to scaffolding, and there was a helter-skelter, which was brought in especially for the night. There was a massive array of bands playing three at once, Pink Floyd, 
Arthur Brown, Soft Machine, The Move, Tomorrow, The Pretty Things, Pete Townsend, Alexis Corner, The Social Deviants, The Purple Gang, Graham Bond, Ginger Johnson and his African Congo drummer. Also, performance poets Ron Giesen, Mike Horowitz, and a certain Yoko Ono, there with her performance piece, A Pretty Girl is Like a Manifesto. Seemed a bit dodgy to me. It seemed to involve inviting various people, mainly men, to snip clothes off a girl with a pair of scissors. But it was witnessed by a certain John Lennon. They call the poetry, the music, the patterns, sculpture and films, the whole artistic output of the beautiful people, the work of the underground. Psychedelic is their favourite word. It means increased perception. It also means what happens when you take LSD and other drugs. The Technicolor Dream was the subject of a BBC documentary. Three film crews and their reporters attended the concert. Here is countercultural figure Jim Haynes telling the interviewer why they're doing it. What would you describe as the purpose of this evening, the 14-hour Technicolor Dream? Oh, well, uh, I think that uh, there's a new period. We're starting a new era, uh, sweeping around as a kind of reaction to... Uh, various things have been happening in the world and it's um, it makes itself manifest itself in love and sweetness and kindness and flowers and you know and so we're just uh, we're just uh, we're not initiating anything so much as uh, portraying what is happening what emotionally do you expect to do for everybody here tonight it's just some in a way a kind of giant communion in a way uh, I don't know what out of the um, event itself we expect what we expect to get, other than people meeting each other and talking to each other and touching each other. Why the emphasis on touching all the time? Words don't, are not effective, but the best way to finally bring about any kind of human contact is actually physically to touch someone. Would you say that you were, as the California people do, would you say that you were beautiful people? Oh, I think so. I think people are concerned with beauty and, and, and uh, colors and flowers and nature and uh, I think there is a kind of aesthetic uh, sense about the whole movement. Feel the way that you do? Oh, I hope so, yes. Larry, Larry Smart technically named the Exploding Galaxy, didn't he? His painting. The adverts for the 49 Technicolor Dream had all gone out, you know, they, they were there and no Exploding Galaxy on there because we hadn't got a name yet. So someone looked at the painting and said, what's that painting called? The Exploding Galaxy. Okay, we've got our name. So it's thanks to Larry Smart we got our name. But there were so many people who wanted to perform and were offering that they had to have two two stages. It was extremely noisy. It was very... a problem, wasn't it? There was basically a sound clash in the middle. That's it. And it was very, very unorganised. I don't know how many people were on the bill, 30 or something? Artists? Far too many for the time. What is funny is how people remember back to that time with rose-tinted spectacles. They sort of... They see it as everything's sprinkled with fairy dust. And it wasn't like that. I remember exactly what it was. People were freezing. They couldn't... The, the UFO had a sprung floor made of wood, so you could lie on that quite comfortably. This was rub, This was concrete, I think, or rubble. But anyway, um, it, it was pretty chaotic. And it was what I call hippie ineptitude, really. At work, but you went to sleep under the stage. Is that right? Yeah. At one stage. Well, we there was a lot of revising to do, so you had to combine being a school child with flower being child. a hippie with a flower child. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I know we were they're studying. Somebody was studying Winter's Tale, um, and uh, the, oh, the Wasteland. So that that was the review. We found a cupboard under this amazing organ. Have you seen the organ? It's absolutely no. giant. People were climbing out of it. It was so God. dangerous on LSD trips. Um, but we were underneath it, locked away. We found a cupboard where we could keep warm and do some revision. So for about three hours of that evening, we were there. What did you do at the 14-hour? <laughs> I revised for my mocks. <laughs> keep keeping your options open. Yeah, exactly. Always good to have a plum business. But, but hold on a second, because this was a... It has passed into countercultural legend. I mean, it was the last time Sid Barrett played with the Pink Floyd. I Already by that time, he was completely gone. But it totally failed, didn't it? Because they lost money, because they gave loads of tickets away... Tons of people didn't pay for the tickets that they were given. Yes, they never paid in the end. One thing Hoppy did say was, no, we never paid that bill. For me, in a way, it marked the end of 
the summer of love, although we hadn't even got past April yet. <laughs> but the, what, what were the Exploding Galaxy doing there? And, and oh. describe what you were doing and with who. So you've re- been rehearsing or talking about it at least, and then you actually get there. What do you do? We did something called the Ballet of the Fast Death. And uh, our initial ballets tended to be very stylized, oversimplified um, narratives about good versus evil. So the good would be the flower children under the magic mushroom being nice to each other. And then along came the um, police, the secret police and the archbishop and anyone you can think of in authority (laughs) who were going to suppress us. And then we are absolutely, you know, crushed. But we start chanting, chanting, turn on turn (laughs) and we restore the world (laughs) to peace i mean it was so naive and and all of that but it was it was it was very popular we went down a storm with it even though we hadn't rehearsed because everyone agreed with this no veiled metaphor preaching to the choir there aren't you (laughs) you fancy that one care do you i do one of your shows i do i think i'll have a bit of that but well here's the your leader jill of the exploding galaxy david medalla explaining to a Curious BBC interviewer, uh, how had it all gone? What was the significance of your dancing with those rings on your legs and in your underpants? Well, the, the, some of them are, uh, some are, the, the, I, I got them from an Amer- American, North, South American Indian tribe. The, uh, the circles mean, uh, you know, the, the, the exits and entrances of the soul, of the spirit. And uh, the stripes mean that these are the boundaries between the, the material and the immaterial. Do you, think you've got, do you think you've got your message across? I think so. I think I think a lot of people understood. But uh, incidentally, we uh, we only started uh, forming this company last Tuesday. We had no rehearsal whatsoever. It was completely uh, a free expression thing. And um, we play, we intend to play we intend to play in the, in, in the streets of London. And uh, we have a, a, a diving ballet in the Thames. You know, we, we're trying to construct our own homemade submarine. Well, that BBC uh, documentary alarmed the older generation who watched it, as it probably was meant to, and of course thrilled the younger generation who wanted to get some of that. Um, But Kev, the establishment did uh, sort of try and crack down, didn't it? Worried by all these crazy goings on. It's interesting where you, you know, the suppression and things like that played out later, didn't it? In that the it seemed that the police and the media were in cahoots once they kind of got hold of the exploding galaxy and the countercultural movement in that they would be feeding each other information a in turn to get a story from a bust from b should we say yes very much now for example the redlands bust of jagger and the, the rolling stones that was definitely the police there at the same time so the press could get the scoop and and they were arm in arm they and certainly for the galaxy they seem to be working as an absolute pair you know and we get these articles of, i mean this is typical free love free lodging free sex and you pay sounds like the daily mail isn't it it's never <laughs> no it's it not it's not it's it the was the people, people. <laughs> it was the people but what's interesting about this is this happened it was good that we're talking about it now this happened after ali pali why because in 1967, you think it was 17th of May, um, be watching um, Man Alive, and the programme was all about what is a happening. And after that programme, the whole thing burst open. It became commercialised. All these clothes that we'd concocted for ourselves that were bright and colourful were being sold on the uh, high street. Uh, so nothing, and then, you know, in terms of um, 14-hour Technicolor Dream, lots of people had made a killing out of that, but not the hippies themselves. So, yeah, it was it, it very much th- at this moment when the television got interested in the hippies, Did it, it, it at that point it became um, quite ugly and uh, the, the, the press went banana. They used to show pictures of people shooting up it had nothing to do. No one had been shooting up. It was just something they'd slung in to make it, people more afraid. So your average parents were very afraid 
of what you know these vice dens like Bulls Pond Road but it said so help me here's another bunch of scruffy long-haired unwashed washouts who believe they have solved all life's problems with callous conceit they reject all the rules which ordinary people live by and are busy setting up groups where everything will be common property and I do mean everything um, in Britain today, there should be little sympathy and even less help for these scruffy layabouts who have their heads in the clouds and their hands in our pocket. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the police would um, bust the clubs, weren't they? Uh, did Ufo have to move to Roundhouse because of the busts? Yeah, well, the, the, I think my, my memory is brilliant on this, but I know that they had to move from the Blarney Club because the police said, we will get rid of your licence if you don't. So that was a threat. The other thing the police did, they used to encourage locals to be horrified and disgusted by these vice dens. And um, I think they said that there had been a child was being uh, inappropriately, um, you know, it was actually a child's birthday party, but they said it was paedophiles. So you had half the Covent Garden market going in and bashing down the yeah. the doors um but the, there was i remember there was a bust at at uh, middle earth there was also they had a trick the trick was a pre-plant now if you were going to pre-plant someone you'd go in on a pretext the day before looking kind of casual probably had long hair um and you'd find something like a cloakroom where there were lots of coats and things so you could stick in some um, hash there and um, at the arts lab someone noticed someone going in a little corner of the place and thought this looks odd went there after they'd left found a great lump of hash and um, and put it in a dustbin outside got rid of it Jim Haynes had gone to the police saying I don't want to be busted because if you owned the property if you were, had the lease of the property you went to prison or you were in big trouble it wasn't like mm. you know if someone in your premises had done it it was your fault too but that didn't stop them trying to do that so you've got two things going on at once haven't you you've got like the uh, the usual kind of establishment reaction always been scared of youth culture always still is and then you've got simultaneously the advertisers and the fashion people are taking it up and reselling yeah. it. It's always the same. Disarm. The same. Well, how do you disarm a movement? Do you, you make, make it, it commercial? Commercial. Oh, commercial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was completely that. In, mm. in, in, in definitely. Of course, uh, you know Danny the drug dealer's uh, famous speech in With Nail and I. The greatest decade in the history of mankind's coming to an end. And we have failed to paint it black. They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths. They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths. Well, that really was how it was. It was by, by 67. The summer mm. of 67, it was almost like that. So it was an almost instant sort of commercial uh, pouncing mm. on the idea. Because what, what is hippie? It's, an, it's ideas. Ideas right. about mm. colours. Ideas about where you live. Well, I don't like using the word hippie because that, we never used it ourselves. But what it's did just you use? Show. We used flower children, beautiful people, uh, heads, people mm -hmm. who are heads, freaks, um, people who are strange. We like the word strange very much. People are strange, yeah. Yeah, people are strange when you're a stranger and all that. So you but can be steal before, ideas. before it all went, you know, a bit sour, I mean, you guys with Exploding Galaxy were... You know, we've already heard one of your performances, quite idealistic. Let me read this. This is you speaking, OK? The fact is we saw the whole of life as an artistic exploration and it was not about creating a product with permanence. Like many in the mid-60s, we believed anybody and everybody was potentially an artist. Uh, so that was quite lovely. So Nick, we were talking mm. about that earlier. And, I mean, also one of the things that you were doing was this, that you were doing art in the streets, public places, yes, right? Housing, housing estates, Parliament yes. Hill, right? Yeah. Engaging the public was a very big thing of what the galaxy was doing. Um, so uh, going out uh, to a park and doing a performance there, or Mike Chat. He's a poet, right? He was a, a stand-up poet in the 60s, and then he went on to become a painter, and he's now living in Brazil. But he was 
all, I seem to remember a couple of times he went to read poetry for John Peel and we all trooped in after him. I was terribly impressed with him. I mean, he was a, a, a sort of larger than life and um, he would go out like a commuter into the streets and um, start reading his poems or he'd pick up a, a piece of rope and he'd start trying to interact with people. What else could be, how, how else could we use this? And people actually, it's funny, they're all, they all look like something out of Call the Midwife, but they're all joining in. They really loved it. But there's photos in the book and of you doing performances on Parliament Hill. There's huge crowds, all yes. smiling, laughing, watching with children. Yeah, you know, as if it's like a sort of summer fair or something. Yes, no, know. no, it was, did have a big draw that one. Um, and tell us about scrudging as well. What's scrudging? Well, scrudging was scavenging or foraging, going back to a time which was so totally different from anything we know now. When you walked through Islington or Hackney, you would be listening to activity work people were actually making things so if it was a little jewelry uh, workshop in in dalston or uh, something somewhere where they were making i don't know um clothing or um dressing gowns or something it's all there in in 67 it's all you can hear banging as you're walking around the street because everyone's working it's yeah. amazing but also it's post-war right so there's some you know rubble and, and bomb sites oh, yeah. still and absolutely um everywhere you know and and uh, one of the galaxy members who came from america john duggar he said he couldn't believe all the holes and the bomb holes and the hard you know fire fireplaces sticking up halfway up a building the bomb damage was definitely there hmm. uh, 20 however many years after the war so you'd go out roaming around picking things up turning them into art pieces or using them in performances yes Taking the art out of the galleries, taking the yeah. performances well, out of the theatres. Why not? Because the gallery that was showing all this amazing art had gone under. So, you know, what else was there to completely turn it? The commercial art world was pretty sick. And what would you do? Well, would you take it all out to the streets? It, was a, it, was, I, it wasn't one person's idea. It was a collective idea. Everything that you could describe that we championed at that time was what everyone felt. Hmm. So it was like sort of mushrooms growing up in lots of places. No one could say, oh, well, um, plastic, you know, inflatables. They were my idea. They were everybody because there were about four people working on them hmm. at the same time. So it was a real creative Collaborative. Time. Yeah. Kev, you, you know, you mentioned earlier you were a bit of a street artist, weren't you, and graffiti, and that's there's something about that, isn't it? The, it's ephemeral, you know, you might do a wonderful tag or picture yeah. or whatever you call it, and then a week later someone's gone over someone's it. Someone's gone over it, someone's but painted over it. But you don't mind it. that. It, it's the nature of the art. It's, part, it's public, and it's the nature is it's transient, it doesn't last, unless you take a photo of it. But it can't be shown in art galleries, and what's interesting about... The galaxy um, and your book is that there isn't much evidence left of what no. you did because no, 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 it was no. so ephemeral and you weren't interested in actually keeping it for posterity, should we say? That's a very good point. I mean, a perfect example of that is the um, bakery raid. We found this defunct bakery accessory factory. It was an empty building except for the remains of what had been a business there. So you know those crump those little cupcake cups, the wrinkly cupcake cups and um the sashes that you put round a cake with f sparkles on them. And we just sort of covered ourselves with it. I mean, I didn't actually go on that day. I'm really sorry I didn't. I was terrified of being thought of someone who'd go in and steal anything. I was Mrs. Prim and Proper. But I did enjoy the, the stuff when it got back to the house. And it was, and luckily there is, in the book, there is quite a lot of documentary evidence from me of those works. In, in a lot of primitive art, you do patterns with dust and sand, different colour sands, and, and those, those are ephemeral. Mm. They're meant to disappear. What was life like in 99 Balls Pond Mud? I know you were only there at the weekend, but it was a commune, effectively, wasn't it? So who was living yeah. there? How many people were living there? How did you eat, pay for it, 
you know, oh. what were the well, lose? What were the lose like? I like all these details. Oh, the lose! You don't want to go there. <laughs> Did you ever live there full time, or was it just no? Weekends? I would stay the weekend and and then I go home and have my bath. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very cold and very empty, and the floor. The first thing you'd see is the floors were covered in candle wax because there was no electricity. Everything was done with candles. We had we did have heating, but it was those sort of oil stoves that you mm. had um i mean it was pretty scruffy but it was made into a galactic artwork by the people who lived there now you said how many were living there well paul keeler told me that he counted 60 people there one day but that was in the early days it had to take it, he had to take control of it mm. and he had to make sure there was no going to be no drugs there yeah. so by July, it quietened down. But I would say there would be about nine or ten people, maybe twelve people living there. All cooking together? and. Uh, well, no, it was slightly less communal than that. You would get someone, John would go and do a Sunday lunch, you'd go and do that for everybody, and it would all be for everybody. And you'd forage from the local market? We'd like forage that. from the local market. If it just dropped on the ground, you could take it. So we'd get all these old Brussels sprouts and onions and things that were half damaged. So we could get the other half and, and you could eat uh, that way. So we had what we called Kingsland stew, which from was... From the Kingsland Road. Road yeah. King, there was a lot of secrecy about things you really treasured. Like somebody had kept their marmalade in a box <laughs> in their room. It, and I thought, that's really like the Regency period where people did keep their food in boxes. Mm. Because, you know... It, uh, I just love the fact that the communal spirit has got to end somewhere, hasn't it? And it yeah. ended at the, my jar of marmalade because you don't want well, you, you don't want to come down in the morning and someone's eating your marmalade. Right? Well, you I mean, did, I'm a bit OCD. I couldn't do this commune thing. I couldn't eat. No, I, mean, I don't think anyone. But could. you said things would go m missing, wouldn't they? And people would stash things, and then you know the sort of utopian dream doesn't work for that long. It if, doesn't work for people like me who got really nice. Um, boots for a Kurt Geiger boots for a birthday <laughs> present that doesn't work you go there and they're gone in five seconds yeah. but there were specific people I think who were doing the the, the, mm. the thieving I won't name them but um, it, the, generally speaking the, the the good outweighed you know there were all sorts of things you could criticize ineptitude squalor selfishness but I it, there was something that made us want to go back. Well, so also, there was youth that? spirit, optimism, ide idealistic... You belief know, in a, belief, the new future. Belief in the age of Aquarius. And, and, of course, you were doing stuff. You were out going out into the streets. You were doing performances. You did another big thing at the Roundhouse, right? Well, I consider the Bird Ballet to be interesting because, it, I, for me, it was the moment at which... What was being produced by the galaxy was less sort of a, a ballet about good and evil and more like going into a, a gallery and looking at an artwork unfolding. And, and these costumes were pretty amazing. Some of the costumes... Um, theatrical run at the Roundhouse was in 1967, in October 1967, with the Exploding Galaxy. The, and the, and the, the Roundhouse performance was the UFO, wasn't it? It was the final sort of hurrah of the UFO at the Roundhouse. Yes, I, I never went to the... What, not once to UFO after it had left Blarney. There were several raids on Bullspont Road where the a police number of them. tried to plant. They tried to plant us at a school, school where we rehearsed, and they accidentally planted a teacher. <laughs> so they couldn't really, they couldn't do anything about that because they didn't know whose bag was whose. Uh, so they then sent so, someone the night before their raid. At Bullspont Road. Yes, in the cellar. Then it, they planted something in the middle um, and they seemed to be looking for the ringleaders. Well, David Medalla was in Paris, um, couldn't get back into England. Paul Keeler was out in the countryside trying to get help for the first raid, you know, get support with his connections. So he wasn't there. So the only sort of senior person they could find was uh, Gerald Fitzgerald, and they slipped some under his, uh, under his bed. And then in the upstairs room, Christian, and they went to a shelf, immediately picked out of this wall of books, they picked out an envelope... Uh, from the British Light uh, Museum, found a little bit of dropsy in it, and Christian grabbed at the lump 
and made to throw it out the window. But he, the, he couldn't open the window, so he threw it back over his head. His his girlfriend, Audrey, picked it up between her toes and hobbled downstairs with his cannabis between her toes and um, then dropped it into the loo, asked if she could use the loo and dropped it in. But, you know, I don't remember what the result of that case was. Why? I mean, they were planting drugs on people... Why? I mean, and then arresting them for what purposes? Well, you could say they just saw us as a menace. I mean, it's extraordinary when they had so many other things to do. I mean, if you think of the um, criminal gangs around Soho, you know, it's easy to get a a hippie, isn't it? Pick up a hippie. Or a pop star. Yes. And they, you know, that was... uh, It's a good question, that. Why did they do it? One of the reasons was because there was not enough protection of individuals... We know now that it's still not up to scratch, mm. but you have to permanently work at it to to stop police corruption. You could go and sit um, in the cell, your police officer go and sit in the cell and say, which would you like? Would you like a lump of cannabis and we'll charge you with um, uh, possession? Or would you like a jemmy and we can charge you with going equipped to steal? Um, that's how bad it was. And um, by the 90s, they had to tape interview. You couldn't just go down to the cell and have a nicey-nicey with the, the, the accused. There were a number of things that came in with PACE. It was the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. did make a difference. I suppose so. there's an outcry against this hippie, you know, this hippie tide, as the press would call it, you know, and the, the people feel threatened by it, then the police need to, need to be seen to be arresting people and doing stuff right. Mm. OK, so, so things are starting to get a bit darker and a bit more difficult. People are getting arrested and uh, there's been raids on 99 Balls Pond. But, and then just, so, but at the same time, you're doing stuff in London, you're out in the streets, doing stuff yeah. at the uh, round house and it was a very brief time wasn't it and so just take us through the end of uh, the exploding galaxy why did it explode completely the start of the kind of disintegration was the police raids because people actually were very frightened to live there they, they they thought that there was no protection from police corruption and so people a whole group of people came to live with my parents for a bit my my lovely parents are sweethearts that they put up with it but um the um so that was definitely a reason why people were less keen to live there um and eventually the house was sold by paul keeler that we went on tour i didn't go slightly too young yeah i, I mean it's just as well you know because yeah, you went to the continent and you went to uh, amsterdam you well the exploding galaxy went to utrecht Paris, Amsterdam, for do, to do performances. There was a film, wasn't there, that was made yes. some, with some of the members. Yes. <laughs> the de- demise, really, the sort of fragmentation of the galaxy started in Paris, didn't it? Reading your book, the rich French patron, Sylvina... Boissonnas. She was an extremely wealthy Parisian heiress. Their family, they had invented a widget for extracting oil, and every t- every sort of gallon of oil that was extracted meant money for the family and she started giving her money away in uh, about the end of 68 and she uh, uh, she was initially just giving it to people who wanted to make a film exploding galaxy right in paris and then they meet this rich french heiress who's Uploading, unloading huge amounts of money I mean, on huge random, random hippies. Well, the, 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 the revolutionaries in Paris wanted to take as much pos- money as possible out of France. I mean, they nearly did topple the government. And that's partly maybe why the police were interested in the exploding galaxy. Of course, we weren't remotely political. I, mean, I think that might have in- egged on people to try and, you know, crush us a bit more but she gave large amounts of money to particular members of the galaxy Group. started off as making films and then it uh, she gave fifty thousand pounds she gave to uh, mike chapman to set up a build a printing press it was called lidio international the international idiot and that was his paper but he got ripped off why well, he certainly didn't manage to hang on to the money and word got round, didn't it? And more people started going over for more handouts. Anyone, anyone. And uh, even with the most tenuous connection to the no connection galaxy. whatsoever, they just mm. had to say we were exploding. And of course, she got she got wise to that, yeah. and she stopped. But David Medalla went with a troop of galaxy people off to um, India to see called Katakali dancers. One person went to South America. Uh, other people went to other parts of the world. So it basically started to as as things do, and it was 
creating ephemeral art anyway, mm. so it started to break up itself and yes. people went on to do other things, including you, right? So yes. it was a particular time. And you, by this time, you're only 16, 17, right? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, mm. I wanted to get into theatre and dance, so I spent some time at the place. Um, I, I was particularly close to one of the kinetic artists who was uh, Elioy de Sica, uh, so I got very much involved when his exhibition was put on at the White Chapel and I became friends with him and so I went off to Brazil at one point because you had links with the Tropicalists didn't you? Yes, you came to yes, London yes, in the 60s yes. their connection was Aloy Tosico because he had invented the term Tropicalia and Caetano Veloso the singer uh, had been so told you should really look at, at what Elio's doing. Caetano used the word tropicalia, but it was a similar movement actually to what was happening mm. in London in the 60s, the tropicalia movement. And the other members of the Exploding Galaxy went off to doing their own things, and many, some of them still alive and still still doing stuff. You mentioned Mike Chapman, and, um, and it was one of those things, wasn't it? I mean, I mean, and I think Kev's final question well i should ask it kev i mean you know about looking back this by the way jill's book which we've mentioned already and coming yeah. out in a new edition soon what was it about the book that you loved so much well i love the the women's perspective really um and that's probably something for another podcast another Certainly. time there haven't been too many accounts written like mm. that and you you know you do touch on a lot of different things especially the sexual revolution in inverted commas mm -hmm. you know and the woman's place in that unfortunately you didn't have the greatest, not you personally, but women didn't have the greatest The person I would think particularly of is Carol Grimes saying, oh no, there I was, m not making meat to veg, I was making brown rice. And they were all sitting in the full lotus position, snapping their fingers. <laughs> <laughs> My final um, question was, is that who's living at 99 Balls Pond Road today? I, I've, I have been passed. Um, uh, what I notice is it's got a burglar alarm. <laughs> so it's gone up market. I tell you what, it was divided, after it was sold, it was divided into two flats. It's now not one house. Mm. But I think when, when I saw an advert for one of the flats for sale, it said, Notorious Home of the Exploding Galaxy. Wow. Yeah, we need some sort of psychedelic plaques, don't we? Yeah. Like they've got a blue plaque for all the kind yes. of like Shelley lived here or yes. Kids lived there. And you need the psychedelic, like version. A psychedelic version. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very good, Jill well, Trower. Thank you very much you. for having me. Kev, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks to Kev, thanks to Jill. Her book, The Exploding Galaxy, really is a trip. Seen from the inside of the psychedelic scenes of late 60s London. And a lot of other stuff. As Kev pointed out, it's very, very interesting on the subject of the way that women were treated during that time. And we're going to get Jill back and another guest to talk about that subject in the future. I'm going to put links to all the things that we've talked about in this episode of the show notes, of course. Thank you for listening and spending your countercultural time with us. Remember, you can check out all that we do at bureauoflostculture.com. Why not support our crazy endeavours? You could buy us a, a coffee or a perno or a pastis. You can sign up for our newsletter. Join us on Instagram or leave us a review somewhere or other. We'd appreciate that. We'll see you next time for more tales from the other side, from the upside down, from the underground. Our best, as ever, counterculturally yours. This episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture was sponsored by the artist known as The Real Tuesday World, tuesdayworld.com. Here they are with their psychedelic song, Something Beautiful, from their album, The Return of the Clark and Well Kid. Thank you.